Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Edgy Talk, Plain Talk, Unrivaled Talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got an awful lot to go out today. It's a beautiful day, by the way. Spring is definitely coming. Uh, We've got Easter weekend, Good Friday. Easter Saturday, the Grand National, uh, we've got Easter Monday, there's all kinds of things going on. Uh, however, uh, let me tell you this, the first item of uh, news on the front page of the Times this morning, almost half of voters say Starmer still lacks vision. Sir Keir Starmer, the man who is supposed to be uh, the kind of uh, eminence Greece, uh, the man who is supposed to be the next Prime Minister of this country, well I'm not so sure. Trevor Kavanaugh is going to be joining us from the Sun, uh, and I'm sure he's going to be agreeing with me. that There is no vision from Starmer, he still can't work out what is going on when it comes to women, he still thinks that, uh, you know, uh, 0.1% of women have a penis, uh, he still thinks that the migrant crisis is not worthy of one of his top five missions that he wants to sort out in this country, he doesn't have his finger on the Pulse. The Labour Party is now trying to rewrite history by saying that they were the ones that clamped down on the uh, criminal and ghastly grooming gangs uh, in certain parts of the north of England when it's become very, very clear that Labour councils in those areas were deliberately uh, obfuscating the truth, of deliberately not investigating what was being told uh, to them that was happening. And the Labour Party themselves, uh, under Gordon Brown's tutelage, was actually actively encouraging people to turn a blind eye. And that seems to me uh, to be a terrible problem for the Labour Party, the terrible problem for Sir Keir Starmer. Frank Ferreira kicks us off this morning, a professor and sociologist, of course, who will be preparing uh, for Donald Trump over in New York. Uh, we're expecting him to be appearing uh, outside of the New York courtroom and the court building to be processed, as they say in America, uh, around about 6.30 in the morning there, uh, which would be around about 11.30 right here uh, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, also, of course, we're going to talk about the Home Office facing legal action uh, over £20,000 a day's migrant bars. We'll talk about Nigel Lawson, uh, who passed away overnight, of course, as well. And much else besides. They banned e-scooters, by the way, in Paris. Why have we not done that? 0344 499 1000. Laura Dodsworth is here as well. We've got plenty to talk to uh, with her. Uh, She's got uh, a lot to say. And also, we're going to ask a question about the post office. What's it for? Have you ever tried sending a letter anywhere recently? Uh, I sent some birthday cards over to my mother in America. It took about two weeks to get there. What is going on? Uh, Howard Cox is here as well. And LaDonna Harvey reporting in from the US of A uh, once Donald Trump has turned up in uh, the courts area in Manhattan. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on.
Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Let's say a very good day uh, and it's a very beautiful cloudless blue sky out there uh, to Mr Frank Ferrady. Frank, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Good to see you. Um, I suppose we should kick off with the uh, the Donald Trump scenario over in the United States of America. I'm still baffled um, as to why people are so kind of uh, enraged by his very existence and why uh, they're, sp- they're spending so much time literally trying to finish him off. He's like the, the beast that will not die, you know, he keeps coming back for more. He's raised more money now uh, than ever uh, since, he's been, since his indictment was announced. He's got more support than ever. And actually, um, for him, this is probably a good thing, isn't it? It is. And if uh, Donald Trump did not exist, his opponents would have to invent him. <laughs> Because in their mind, Trump is this uh, omnipotent, devil-like character. That they're, the, they're the only person that they can unite against. It's almost what keeps the Democratic Party going and giving it a, a sense of meaning. And of course, what they're doing now is they're basically uh, uh, in the process of creating a show trial, a Soviet kind of show trial, where they're essentially uh, using political instruments and judicial instruments as a way of trying to uh, sort of undermine his reputation. Mm. And his reputation is not exactly very high at the moment, but the whole, the whole way they're going about it ensures that uh, if, it, if it continues like this, his reputation will get rehabilitated because he will be seen to be the victim rather than the perpetrator of something that is wrong. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time in America, 10 years pretty much, between the years of sort of 1983 and 1992, um, I've never seen anything like what it has become, you know, because even in those days, you know, I covered the Clinton campaign when I got there. Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, I was there when Bush was president. Um, I watched the emergence of Clinton. You know, politics has changed irrevocably there. I wonder, as, as always happens, whether we will follow down that route. I think sometimes I, I also feel there's a danger that we're uh, embracing that kind of very polarised a very childish, immature uh, political landscape that they have in the United States. I worry about the way in which in America, the distinction between uh, the judicial system and the political system is fast being eroded. I I just worry about the way in which uh, people uh, just refuse to talk to each other, just a refusal to discuss and debate and to imagine that your opponents are by definition evil. There's no such... uh, uh, idea anymore that he, someone's a political adversary that you can argue and debate with. They're like the enemy uh, that you have to destroy. And, and that kind of uh, political outlook is very damaging to democracy. And I think American democracy has now become emptied of meaning, where essentially you have two or three different nations that have got nothing in common with each other, and where they're using every single possible tool, instrument, weapon to destroy each other rather yeah. than to build a common public world together. I mean, we've all, we've always seen, haven't we, in the sort of legal sphere, you know, some juries are different to other juries, depending on which state you're being tried in. But it's now becoming politically um, split as well. It used to be on racial grounds. You know, if you committed a murder, uh, if you were black in the South, um, you'd probably more likely get off than if you were uh, in the northeast of the country. But now it said that they're actively saying, you know, if this was in Mississippi or if this was in Texas, Donald Trump would not even be indicted. Well, that's right, because we now have this bizarre situation in the United States where you have local prosecutors, lo- local attorney generals, 
who can initiate proceedings against individuals. Uh, they, they can go about the business of building up a case. And these days you can build up a case by using all kinds of subterfuge and other methods. So you can have a, a small, you know, sort of individual, a small town individual who's got no public presence at all, making a name for themselves by trying to bring uh, somebody quite prominent to trial. And that's what we're seeing in New York State. It wasn't even the federal government that initiated. This was a local initiative, right. obviously promoted by the Democrats. But it is something that is so arbitrary uh, you know, that you kind of wonder, what does this have got to do with justice? Well, it has nothing to do with justice and everything to do with trying to end the political career of, of Donald J. Trump, which I think it's going to be unsuccessful in, really. It is, because uh, in a sense, his political ambitions have been thwarted. His political career, in the, in the classical sense that we, un, we kind of associated with Trump, is pretty much in the past. But it's almost as if they're kind of recreating the past. They're trying to you know, sort of turn Trump into this... Uh, ideal opponent, because they believe, I think wrongly, that if they can uh, turn Trump into this all-purpose monster that is going to frighten everybody in the United States, then the Democrats can win the next election, particularly the next presidential election. Because the last thing they want is to run against DeSantis, who's who's a very relatively effective much more plausible Republican candidate. Yeah. It's why I think Keir Starmer's struggling at the moment, although, you know, people will say, oh, what do you mean he's struggling? He's leading in the polls. But he's, he hasn't found a way yet to kind of counter the new style of, of what he's up against. You know, he was very comfortable battling Boris Johnson because, you know, he could point to the fact that Boris Johnson was not a details man. He was a bit of a buffoon. Uh, he was all about, um, you know, partying at uh, Downing Street while people were dying and all of those things that he did say about Boris Johnson. He can't do any of that against Rishi Sunak. And, and we see this morning on The Times, um, half of voters say they still think that he lacks vision and that they don't really see him potentially as a prime minister. Yeah, I mean, he's a very sad character because uh, he's probably a nice guy, the kind of guy that you might want to have a half a pint with in a pub. I'm not sure about that. He, pretty, he was pretty but, quick to throw his good friend Jeremy Corbyn under the bus, wasn't he? Yeah, but I mean, what I'm really trying to say is it's probably okay in his own terms, but, but he's not a, a political leader. He reminds me of uh, the kind of boring uh, deputy bank managers you encounter now and again who are very good with numbers, uh, always tell you the same kind of story. Yeah. They try to be a, come across as a regular guy, but you know deep inside that this is not the kind of person you want to spend the rest of the night with because they're just going to go on and on and drone. Right. So when it comes to speaking in his own behalf as a political leader, he obviously lacks conviction. He is okay when he can parasitically benefit from the mistake of others, but he's somebody uh, that is not really a a prime minister material. And in some sense, I feel sorry about the fact that the Labour Party hasn't got their act together for for over a decade now in terms of trying to get a a real leader, because every government needs a good opposition. British society needs two good parties with two good leaders. And at the moment, the Labour Party is conspicuously lacking in anybody uh, that can play that kind of a role. And uh, as you were hinting earlier on, when you've got a potential prime minister uh, that kind of confuses uh, somebody with a penis uh, as to being a woman, you know that they're in deep trouble. You know, they are not going to be able to uh, deal with the more complex issues. If you cannot deal with such simple issues, Mm. what is a man and what what is a woman, 
what are you going to do when you come across with real complex diplomatic matters? Right. And you can you can also say, tell with, with with relative ease that the amount of preparation that he would have gone through to answer that question in that Sunday Times interview at the weekend, you know, where the Labour apparatchiks would have all been sitting around the room saying, "Well, you can't say." You know, you can't just say it bluntly that, 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 you know, women don't have penises. You just can't say that because you're the leader of the Labour Party. You'll have to allow for some kind of room for manoeuvre uh, from our friends in the trans movement. And then today uh, we see that he did another interview in which he said people don't care about the trans issue. Uh, they're more worried about uh, the cost of living. So he's now running away from it at 100 miles an hour because he's seen that it didn't work. Because as Andy from Thatcher has pointed out to me, Starmer now says 35,000 women in the UK can have a penis. Well, that's... That's a lot of uh, ladies with penises for any society. It is. Uh, you, you kind of that wonder. Phil Stanford Bridge. <laughs> you kind of wonder uh, what his fantasies are like. I can imagine, you know, Keir getting up in the morning, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, and looking at his wife and wondering, you know, sort of, is there going to be some kind of uh, biological, unusual biological? I know. It is, because it is so ludicrous and absolutely and utterly ridiculous. But his other big problem, of course, is the migrant crisis, where he doesn't want to go either. And he set out his five missions for what we should be doing. And it turns out that immigration, as far as he's concerned, isn't one of the most top five important subjects in Britain. And he's wrong about that. He is. I think he suffers from uh, courage bypass, where yeah, when you're confronted with anything that is remotely difficult, yeah. uh, he kind of runs away from that. And I think it's very, very sad that the Labour Party these days uh, creates the impression that the migrant issue is not important. They sometimes even create the impression that uh, if they were around, then they would deal with the issue in a more effective kind of a way. But when you ask them, how, you know, how is that going to happen? Yeah. Then they change the subject. And this continuous changing of the subject and evading the real kind of issues that char- characterises a very confused, disoriented and cowardly political party. Yeah, absolutely right. I couldn't have put it better myself. Frank, stay where you are if you wouldn't mind. Frank Ferreira's talking to us right now, right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We'll take your calls, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We've got lots to talk about today. We've got e-scooters. We're also going to talk a little bit about uh, Nigel Lawson, of course, the man uh, who was in many ways the architect of what you might describe as the modern Thatcherite Tory party. Uh, and we'll talk about that as well. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The place to be, of course, for all manner of things. Common sense being one of them. The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Frank Verady joins us this morning, sociologist and author. We've just got a bit of breaking news, Frank. We knew it was happening, uh, but Finland has now officially joined NATO. Uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg just held it as a momentous moment. It makes the 31st country uh, to join uh, the organisation. Um, does this put more pressure on Putin? I mean, obviously he would have been expecting this, but what's your initial reaction to that? I have a lot of time for the Finnish people. One interesting fact that people don't realise is that when last year they asked people in Europe, every single country, would you fight for a country if a war broke out? The Finns scored the highest. That was really quite remarkable. A very high percentage of Finnish people are prepared to fight for their country. And I think the reason for that is because they feel very much under threat from from the Russian they have fought many wars against Russia in the past. And I think that the fact that they finally decided to join NATO indicates just how high the stakes are. Mm. I think this will create a new problem for Putin because uh, until very recently, that bit of the border was taken for granted. There wasn't very much problem there. 
And it seems to me that uh, the, the, the behavior of the Finns in this war has been remarkably good. Mm. And that will, I think, uh, in many ways, encourage people in all the Baltic areas, particularly, that there are people, there are nations that are prepared to fight alongside of them. Yes, uh, because so I think it's, it's difficult, well. I imagine, for us to... Uh, we, we, we've got the channel that separates us from mainland yes. Europe. Um, the Finns are right next to Russia. And, you know, under the current circumstances, that must be a bit unnerving. It is. I mean, just imagine you're living in Finland. At the border, you can almost literally see St. Petersburg. You're that close to it. Uh, and they've been invaded by the Russians on numerous occasions. There was a famous winter war in the 40s where they fought against the Soviet Union very, very bravely. Uh, and I think that there's something remarkably uh, encouraging about Finnish people, their courage, uh, their, their good humor. They're, they're serious drinkers, but they, they drink in a very kind of lovely, nice, mm. kind of friendly kind of a way. Uh, I, I just think that th their decision uh, is a very uh, good step forward in, in terms of the conflict that we're now engaged in. Yeah, because the conflict itself doesn't seem like it has an end at this point. I don't think anybody can really envisage either one, when that could happen, or two, what it would even look like. It is. I, I wrote a book last year on, on this subject, and I argued that this is a never-ending war, because yeah. this is a war that neither side can afford to lose, but neither side can win. And it seems to me that we have to understand that the stakes are high here. It's going to go on for a long time. And we're going to have to be able to either bring about peace or alternatively uh, be ready to uh, carry on for the long haul. And I think that is the difficulty, isn't it? Because people, certainly in the US, are probably not as, as kind of engaged with the war in Ukraine as people are in Europe, because obviously people in Europe feel closer to it. And Ukraine is, after all, really European as a country, uh, both culturally and in every other way. Um, but uh, I wonder whether it makes a difference and if it will still be going on when the presidential election takes place um, in 2024. That's a very, very good question. There is a, a discernible sense of war weariness in the United mm. States. There are in parts of Europe. That's natural. It's understandable. But in the United States, uh, a section of the population has always been fairly isolationist and has had very little appetite for the war. Uh, to some extent, you can understand their personal concerns because there's a lot of poverty in the United States. A lot of people are saying, uh, why don't you look after us instead of spending all these resources on the war? But these are the big issues that we have to be able to argue about and convince people that at the end of the day, uh, your economic security is inseparable from your, from your military and your, and, and your political security, physical security. And unless we stand up to people who are or the real aggressors, you're going to be the next one that will pay the price. Mm. I noticed that you uh, retweeted a piece in the Times the other day from uh, uh, somebody who'd written, written about how Britons have now burned out and knackered because they can't decide whether they're working or they're having yeah. a day off because of mobile phones. Today's the 50th anniversary of the mobile phone. And I'm sadly old enough to remember what life was like without them. Um, and I remember getting my first ever mobile phone. I was working for the Daily Express as a reporter. And they handed me this big Nokia brick thing with a big sort of aerial that came out the top of it, sent me down to, um, I think it was Snaresbrook Crown Court to cover some MP who'd been done for drunk driving. And uh, I came, when I came back to the office, they said, uh, where have you been? I said, well, I've been at Snaresbrook, you know. I went down there. They said, why didn't you answer your phone? I said, well, it never rang. And they looked at it and they went, you've got to switch it on. 
I was like, oh, okay. I mean, literally didn't have a clue. Um, and then spent most of my time avoiding the office and hated the idea that they could actually call me up on the mobile. But you used to be able to say, no, the battery's run out. You know, nowadays we are, un it's impossible to disappear, isn't it? It is. But of course, if you uh, have got the wherewithal and the courage, you can switch off the phone. You don't need to answer every single time somebody calls you. Every time you get a text message, yeah. you don't have to get your phone. And I do think that if there's a problem, it's, uh, it's with us rather than with this bit of technology because uh, nothing, there's nothing I find more irritating when you're walking along the street in London and you find these zombie individuals with their phone in front of their eyes. Yeah. They, they have no idea where they're going. Not they even looking where they're going, yeah. If they're going to bump into you. But they're so obsessed with uh, being up to date with the latest message that they lose sight of reality. And that's our fault. It's got nothing to, with, not, nothing to do with being burnt out. It's just simply that we have decided that we're going to give up our independence, our autonomy to take control over our lives. And we're going to let this little machine uh, basically boss us around. Yeah, because people do feel, I think, enthralled to it. And I, I, I mean, even I, can, who I consider myself to be a reasonably well-balanced individual, you know, there is a time when you sometimes go, well, God's sake, I mean, do I have to, why do I have to keep getting all these messages? Why is there another email to answer? You know, you're right, you can just switch off. And you probably should. I mean, I'm not one for telling people what to do or to, to give people advice on, on managing their own lives. But you probably should have a few hours of the day where you just go, I'm not actually going to do that. Have you noticed... Uh when you kind of walk around the streets or you're sitting on the tube, there are all these individuals with their phone in front of their eyes and they've mm. got this insane smile on their faces. Yeah. They're reading something incredibly pleasurable or very, very humorous yeah. or somebody has really told them something very lovely. Mm. And it's almost like a, a performance where people now have this phone performance where they know people are looking at them and therefore, what you've done is you kind of put on this little play act where the phone is in front of you, you've got the inane smile yeah. on your face. And yeah. that becomes the kind of image that you're kind of cultivating. And it seems to me that what has happened is for many, many people, the phone has become their new limb. It's as important as their arms mm. and their legs. And you take it away from them and they'll start crying like a baby that, you know, I want it back. I want, I want, I want it back. Yes. I mean, I suppose if you haven't got any friends, you can have a phone and pretend that you've got friends that you're talking to. It's a bit like those people that used to put the phone up to their ear to pretend they were talking to somebody. And then the phone rings and, they, and you go, oh, you're not actually talking to somebody. You're just pretending. People behave in very odd ways nowadays, though, don't they? It does. I mean, I'm guilty that whenever I, I'm talking to somebody whose conversation I want to avoid, I look at my phone suddenly. So I'm sorry, I got to go. I just got this message. <laughs> it's kind of evasive tactic that I developed to avoid boring people. Yes. But, uh, you know, we all do this. And that's part and parcel of our play acting yes exactly right listen great to talk to you frank as ever uh, thank you very much indeed frank ferrady there uh, with his take on the day's news and of course it will be dominated very much today by what's going on in new york city uh, in manhattan down at the uh, federal district court where uh, the manhattan attorneys are taking him over the coals he's going to be indicted officially uh, on what we're told is 30 odd charges we don't know what, quite what they are, but we expect to see Donald Trump, the Donald, uh, the 45th president of the United States of America. And for those people on social media who say you shouldn't call him President Trump, he's not the president anymore, you're all numpties. Every president is still president, no matter even if they are no longer president. So there. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about Nigel Lawson. Trevor Kavanaugh's here from The Sun. Uh, we'll find out what the latest is as well with that Wall Street Journal reporter who's been arrested in Russia. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on, uh, lots to talk about this morning, uh, not just Donald Trump, but also Nigel Lawson, uh, who passed away, uh, the former Chancellor, of course, a man who, with Margaret Thatcher, more or less sort of created uh, modern Tory government uh, from 1979 onwards. Uh, he did away with uh, a 60% tax uh, income tax rate, put it down to 40%. He created the atmosphere for the Big Bang to happen in the city of London uh, so that London could become the financial centre of the world. He also defenestrated uh, some of the big nationalised industries, uh, gave opportunity to individuals to get uh, into the property market, also helped people to buy shares in companies and all of that. Um, and one of the things that he said, just before we introduced Trevor Kavanagh uh, to you, uh, is that the three enemies of government, and particularly of Tory governments, were rampant inflation, a bloated public sector, uh, and overburdening tax rates. And that seems to me to be exactly where we are right now. Trevor, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Yes, um, a towering figure, I have to say. A, a very towering figure. Yes, and those three things that I heard him actually say, uh, like somebody played an old, um, an old interview with him this morning, um, you know, the, the high taxes, um, raging inflation uh, and the, um, uh, the other uh, problem for the economy. We, we face all of that, the bloated public sector. Our public sector is getting bigger, not smaller. Absolutely. I mean, he could have been speaking right now about yeah. the modern problems facing Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. But the point that uh, he finished with, the sentence that he finished with after that remark was that we've defeated them. Yeah. And that was the triumph of Nigel Lawson. He came in with revolutionary ideas which were opposed not just by the trade unions who were vigorously anti-Lawson, but by the corporate sector, by, by the very sector that should have been producing the riches that this country had at its fingertips. They opposed almost every measure he took in reforming the taxation system, the deregulation, the privatization, all bitterly opposed by the, the, the likes of the CBI at the time. Yes. So it was a very courageous chancellor. He, he was definitely the most transforming chancellor of the, of the last century. Yes, I think there's no question about that. And, and, the, and the scale of the, of the kind of the battle that he faced was incredible when you consider what he had inherited because they'd had the whole Callaghan uh, failure of, of government, the crisis, what crisis years, the, the, the winter of discontent. Uh, we'd had all the strikes, the three-day weeks. We'd had the miners' strikes. We'd had everything uh, that was going on. I mean, it was a very toxic atmosphere, wasn't it? It was, and I remember it vividly because I had just returned from Australia where none of these problems were uh, uh, sort of raining at yeah. all. And uh, I came back in 1978 right into the thick of the winter of discontent the tail end of the Callaghan government and yeah. the beginning of the Thatcher government. And it was at that point that Nigel Lawson was busy building his reputation, preparing for the coal strike, which was in the end the, the breaking point for the trade union movement, mm. the beginning of the end of the, the tyrants of the trade union movement. And uh, it was his long-range strategic thinking which prepared the ground for it. Yeah, absolutely right. And the city of London was more or less created. It's an extraordinary time, really, to think back on it. And you were right at the heart of it, obviously, uh, when you were working at The Sun uh, during that period and the whole whopping dispute and everything else. Um, I don't know. I mean, lots of people this morning have been saying we don't have that kind of towering figure in government anymore. But are we being a bit unfair there and just sort of being a bit grumpy and old and saying, well, it's not like it was? Well, I do wonder about this because um, the one thing that Nigel Lawson did was to make sure that before he began his reforms, slashing taxes and deregulation and all the rest of it, 
He made sure that the economy was on a sound footing. Um, he didn't do what Liz Truss did, which was to simply decide to throw away all the, um, the, the measures of security uh, and cut taxes without thinking about how she was going to pay for them. So I think that Rishi Sunak, who has a picture of Nigel Lawson on his wall, um, I think he shares the same view. The point is, is there time? Does he have the energy? Will he get the backing to deliver the sort of reforms that we desperately need right now to confront those three uh, enemies that Lawson mm. spelled out so long ago? I mean, I think people also forget, I suppose, as we talk now about people struggling with the cost of living, the excessive uh, energy bills that we're having to pay and all of that. Back in the late 70s, Britain was a much poorer place. It was a much poorer country. The, the general populace, I would say, had a lot less than we do now. Yes, and I think that to some extent you could argue that that helped Nigel Lawson because it gave him the springboard to do something about it. People were sick and tired of the trade union strikes. Yeah. They were sick and tired of British Telecom, and all, which wasn't British Telecom then, but the the, uh, the telephone system. Yeah, it was the like railways, GPO, all, wasn't it? I, re I remember yeah. you, you had to wait, but if you wanted a new, because I, I was quite young in those days and you'd move from flat to flat. If you wanted a phone put in, it was about a month's waiting list usually. Yes, I mean, it was just uh, wading through molasses to get anything yeah. done. So the people were probably ready and willing and on his side when he did that. Whether that's the case now yet, it will be eventually, but whether it's the case yet for Rishi Sunak, I'm not sure. But I think that he has the right intentions. Whether he has the support for it is another thing. Right. Well, the one thing in, in Rishi Sunak's favour, it seems to me at the moment, is Sakir Starmer. Uh, who seems to be stumbling and bumbling around without um, even being uh, sort of challenged to do anything. He's managing to make himself less popular because he had this policy for a long time under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, just keep your mouth shut, watch them screw everything up. Now uh, he's faced with something a bit more serious, a bit more, um, I suppose, um, well-managed, if you like, as an economy. Um, and he's got himself into more trouble. Uh, the Times this morning is saying that almost half of voters say he lacks vision, um, mm. They're not happy with the way that his plodding has got them so far, but not very much further. Um, and he's now run into trouble again because um, he's apparently claimed that there could be as many as sort of, you know, 30 odd thousand women with a penis in Britain. <laughs> Look, I think that uh, I'm really astonished, actually, that um, Keir Starmer has the sort of lead that he commands in the polls against the Conservatives right now mm. because um, he has, uh, I think, done a somersault in almost Neil Kinnock-like uh, proportions yeah. on every single uh, issue and policy that he embraced so warmly only two or three years ago. Mm. I, I cannot imagine that the public, the voting public, is so blind and, and uh, ignorant that it is not clocking all of these things and that will only take some sort of crisis and decision-making thing like a, an election to make them see sense. Exactly right. And of course, you know, he's already angered a good portion of the party by taking it more into the centre and becoming a bit more Blairite. You know, I heard Lord Mandelson singing his praises the other day, uh, which for an awful lot of people will be the kiss of death. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that the, uh, the, the, the problem is that his own party is divided. He doesn't know which way to turn in order to get the MPs who sit behind him uh, to get them from refraining to try and get him out, because it's not so long ago, Michael, you'll remember this, it's only a couple of years ago that at party conferences, at Labour Party conferences, they were talking about ditching Keir Starmer. Mm. And I think the only thing that saved him is the turbulence and tribulations of the Tories 
in the meantime, if the Tories get this right, if Rishi Sunak begins to come across to the general public as a, as a, a genuine and uh, convinced and uh, uh, determined politician, I think that will erode the Labour lead rapidly to the point where it's not going to be a walkover for Labour. No. And also, their other Achilles heel for me is, is the immigration question, because of, of all of uh, the five missions that Sir Keir Starmer's laid out in front of us that he wants to fix about Britain, immigration isn't even one of them. No. And, and I think that this is something that the Conservatives, Suella Bradman is promising that she's going to do something about it. Before the next election, and indeed before the end of this year, we do need to see evidence that people are not going to be allowed to simply cross the channel as they are without repercussions. There has to be the promised plane loads of um, illegal immigrants being flown off to Rwanda. We have to see it with our own eyes. Otherwise, I don't think that this is going to help the Tories. If they fail to deliver on this single issue, I think that Starmer will be able to waffle his way through. Mm, absolutely right. I've just got a breaking piece of polling news for you. The, the, the Sunak-Starmer uh, gap has been narrowing slightly, uh, but they're still 23 points behind, so still a long way to go. Um, but, I mean, here's the other problem uh, for, for Starmer. When you talk about immigration, it was kind of ironic, I thought, on the first weekend of the Easter holidays that there were massive queues at Dover for people trying to go legally to France on holiday. But coming the other way, it's not a problem, <laughs> you know. No, I no, you can get across it uh, with at ease. But um, I, I think this is yet another example of the French and the unions in France being bolshy about everything, but, but in particular about Britain. I mean, we are an easy target, aren't we? Yeah. Um, we are desperate to get across and get some sunshine in the school holidays particularly. And it's so easy for them to pull the plug and make it difficult. Yes. But by the way, I don't believe that poll. 23%, I just, I just find that a total figment of someone's yes. imagination. Yeah, well, I mean, they've been wrong before. I suspect they'll be wrong again. Let's just finish up with a word on uh, Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who's been um, arrested by the FSB, uh, the security services in Russia. Number 10 yesterday vowed to uh, do everything they can to defend the press freedom and try and get get him back here. Um, I think the US are, are also going to get involved in that as well. Um, it's a shocking situation, isn't it? Yes, it's an act of outright outrageous spite by the uh, uh, the Putin regime. And it is, I mean, this man is uh, of unimpeachable integrity and uh, uns uh, of, of scrupulous journalism. He is not uh, in any way a uh, likely spy. And uh, I think that, um, that we need to apply enormous pressure on Russia to try and get him out of there. But you know, frankly, I think he's being used as a puppet to make us to, to make us suffer. Absolutely right. Trevor, thanks very much indeed. Good to talk to you. Trevor Kavanaugh, political columnist at The Sun, of course, and Evan um, and his uh, family are very much in our thoughts. We are uh, also, if you go to Twitter, you see the hashtag uh, I stand with Evan. Uh, we will be doing everything, obviously, that we can uh, here uh, to try and get Evan out of the Russian uh, control because he's been arrested, supposedly, on charges of spying, faces 20 years behind bars if he's found guilty. But uh, we all know that that is really not what the story is about. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Big day ahead, of course, Donald Trump's team 
uh, are assembling, uh, as it were. Uh, he gets up early every day anyway, uh, but he's due down apparently uh, to Manhattan uh, Central Court around about 6.30 a.m. American time, New York time, Manhattan time. Uh, that'll be 11.30, of course, our time. So as soon as something happens on that front, we will bring you uh, the video of that going on. Uh, we've been talking about e-scooters in Paris, banning them, why we should not ban them. We've been talking about Keir Starmer. Apparently, most people think uh, that he doesn't have any vision and they don't really fancy the idea uh, of him being uh, the next prime minister of this country. Almost half the voters of this country who were polled said uh, they did not think he had any vision. And he, he still doesn't really know what a woman is. He still doesn't think immigration is a big problem. Uh, we've also been talking about uh, Nigel Lawson and his legacy because he was one of the great conservative chancellors whose main three enemies were high taxes, raging inflation and a bloated public sector. That, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, is where we are. And speaking uh, of problems, we're going to be talking to Russell Quirk in a moment about the post office, because the post office, I have to tell you, is in an absolute state of disablement, practically. We've got postal situations going on. The Royal Mail, um, does it even work anymore, is the question we're going to be asking. But before we do that, let's have a look at something that the Trump legal team have put together. This is, of course, the MAGA war room. Make America great again. The war room has put together this. If this does not give you some chills prior to the indictment hearing in Manhattan court, you're not alive. Check it out. The Russia, the Russia collusion hoax. President Trump has just been impeached on both Article The one only one. president of the United States to be impeached for a second the January time. 6th committee releasing its final 845-page report. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted. Remember this. Nothing worth doing ever, ever, ever came easy. Following your convictions means you must be willing to face criticism from those who lack the same courage to do what is right. Relish the opportunity to be an outsider. Embrace that label. Being an outsider is fine. Embrace the label. Embrace the label. There's more of that. We'll play more of it as we go through uh, the course of the show, through the course of the day here uh, at the Independent Republican Microphone, because it is a massive story. And it will be a massive story. So far, it seems to be working in its favour, which is, of course, very Trump, isn't it? Let's talk now, though, to Russell Quirk, of course, a man that we see very often as a presenter uh, on Talk TV these days, as well as uh, an expert on a variety of subjects. But we thought we'd talk to you, Russell, today about the Royal Mail, because the Royal Mail, according to a, a, an investigation that was done recently, is literally falling down around its ears. I mean, I actually know from personal experience, I don't use it very much, but we sent some, uh, my mother was 99 recently, sent some birthday cards over, you know, from the kids and the dog and me and all the rest of it. Um, took two weeks to get to Connecticut. Two yeah. weeks. Well, I, but Mike, morning, and um, happy birthday to your mother, by the way, Thank 99, you. what an old age, fantastic for I a know. woman. What a woman. Um, but it's not just Connecticut that it takes two weeks for uh, mail to arrive. I mean, that can happen if you post something from Aylesbury to the City of London or vice versa, <laughs> it seems. So the, the standard within the Royal Mail is that 93% of first-class mail should arrive the next day. And actually, we achieved that up until about 2020. Right. What's happened since the pandemic, and now I guess what you call the epidemic of pandemic excuses, yes. is the fact that as a consequence of that, and because of all the legacy, and, and frankly, it would seem the acute and baked in laziness that has come as a consequence yeah. of us all having our kind of uh, foot off the gas, our eye off the ball. Royal Mail, despite the fact they've just put up first class stamps yet again, I think they're over a quid now, over yeah. a pound. It's one pound ten, apparently. 
One pound ten. And 80% of letters don't arrive the next day. Right. It's absolutely shocking. And, and frankly, I think it's really indicative of where we are now. I mean, we're paying more in every aspect of life. And I don't just mean when it comes to fruit and vegetables and inflation, but we're paying more for our police, more for our NHS. You know, we're paying more for everything, particularly in the public sector, and we're getting less back. It simply isn't on. No, it really isn't. Um, because I'm looking here at a Daily Mail investigation in which they found that some of the worst, um, I think, delivery targets were Glasgow, uh, where they got something like um, the slowest uh, first-class mail took six days to get there, um, and on-time deliveries were simply were only 21 percent. Absolutely horrendous. And I know from when I was working actually in Scotland, we did a little study once up there where it was actually quicker. Um, when they used to deliver the the, uh, the post by horseback uh, than it is now. Uh, this, well, was, this, this was about 10 years ago. When they literally handed it to a guy in Edinburgh, he got on a horse and went to London, changed horses a couple of times. The, the mail actually got to London quicker than it does now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you, know, you could be forgiven for thinking they're still delivering things on horseback. <laughs> I mean, or maybe you know, by a foot walking backwards. Yeah, this is the royal mail let's remind ourselves this is supposed to be a great british institution another yeah. one of those things that the rest of the world look at and go wow you know a bit like the military and when the police service in britain were actually a fit for purpose police service people look at us and think wow they do those things really really well mm. that's all gone by the wayside yeah. it's all just completely evaporated well um, I, I mean i know i mean i very rarely get anything delivered uh, to me a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. But people say to me, if they see that somebody is delivering to them, to their home by Royal Mail, they actually opt out of that because they'd rather have one of the other courier companies. And also, we know they're not particularly brilliant either. Well, the Royal Mail, of course, as well, they blame the fact that fewer and fewer people now are using Post because yeah. obviously we're digital. They apparently are focusing their efforts in terms of so-called efficiency on parcels because that's the most profitable part of the business. Yeah. But but this, and look, I say this as a, as a free marketeer, as I, I'm sure uh, you and I kind of share mm. uh, a philosophy on, there is no competition for Royal Mail when it comes to post. And of course, that's what happens when you end up with a monopoly, particularly when it's run like the public section. Of course, the Royal Mail now, you know, since whenever it was in 2019, I think has been privatized, but it's still run like a public sector business. So no competition, public sector mentality, and, and look where it ends up. And, and, and of course, the unions, I think, Mike, also have a big part to play here. 
in that when you've got a heavily unionized organization like Royal Mail, yeah. where posties want to work less and they want to earn more, you know, this kind of back to the 70s rhetoric. Yes. Is it any wonder that the thing becomes less efficient? And guess who suffers? Us, yes. the customer. Well, also, we've got this same mantra now in every single aspect of the public sector where apparently uh, it's very difficult to retain the staff because it's such a terrible job and they're all leaving. I'd love to know where they're all leaving to go. I'm not sure I buy this, that, you know, teachers are all leaving, doctors are leaving, nurses are leaving, posties are are leaving. You know, where are they all going? Since there's loads of vacancies, they're obviously not working at all. Yeah, there's a million vacancies, aren't there, out there for, for you know, all and sundry. Yeah, I don't know where these people are going, frankly. Um, but look, I, I wouldn't have thought that being a postal worker was a particularly bad job. You know, OK, they might start a bit early, mm. but they seem to finish about half past mm. 12. Yeah. Then, they, you know, where I live, we don't get a postal delivery on Saturday anymore. So it's a Monday to Friday thing. Yeah. They're out in the fresh air. You know, delivering to whatever they deliver to, 60 or 70 post boxes every day. Um, it can't be that difficult, mm. can it? I mean, look, you, you'd have to venture... Are Royal Mail now in the same kind of position in terms of uh, disregard for the public and for, you know, for being lazy as the teachers and NHS workers and so on? We, we, look, Britain's got to pull itself up by its bootstraps, Mike, because otherwise we're literally going to end up back where we were in the 70s. Yeah. That's the way it's all heading. And I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of actual individual posties because I think they do, generally speaking, in and of themselves, do a good job. I'm not going to say whether it's hard or not because they're out in the, in the rain as well when, when I wouldn't fancy that. But I think the management also have to be uh, given quite a fair deal of, 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 uh, of, of shellacking as well because they're taking loads of dividends out and they're taking loads of profit out and giving it to themselves. And I don't mind that, but I'd rather they were doing it because the service was working well and it was a success rather than yeah. that they were just squeezing it a bit more but the other thing is is, is it maybe not just a, an anachronism now to have some bloke or woman uh, or person of a non-binary nature delivering something to your door because somebody else has sent it to you you know wouldn't it make more sense for a robot to do that i mean they've got these amazon little um droney things now haven't they that drive around which which are, which are automatic yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think that Royal Mail now needs competition. You've got all of these other organisations, whether it's you know DHL, DPD, and so on. And a lot of those courier companies, of course, are also criticised for not being great in some instances of what they do, whether it be not delivering on time, dealing with people's parcels in a disrespectful way. But I think those parcel companies might want to start thinking about providing a post service to rival and compete with Royal Mail. Yeah. Because there's nothing better to improve service than proper competition. No, exactly right. Uh, Angela says this, since post office inhabited WH Smiths, they've become totally useless, rude, unhelpful and dirty. I've also seen them inside supermarkets as well. Yeah, it's because it's a monopoly. So, you know, you've got no choice, have you? You know, when your local high street, as has happened in mine, they decide to close down the post office. And, yeah, it ends up being, you know, tantamount to a, a phone box in the corner of a newsagent. You've got no choice, have you? You know, if you want to go, and obviously there's a lot of things that people do, particularly those that don't have access to the internet, particularly the elderly, they've got no choice but to queue up for four and a half hours, having walked up a load of steps at WH Smith's to go and uh, do whatever they need to do in the post office. Right. It's not right. You know, it's um, it, it's we, we almost need to kind of go back to where we were, I think. Um, and, and particularly the Royal Mail, there's there, there's a case to answer here for sure in terms of change and competition. But also the fact that apparently the Royal Mail now don't even make a profit. So despite the fact there's only one of them and they can almost charge what they like, which they are, yeah. they don't even make a profit. It's absolutely outrageous. Who's running this thing? Well, I mean, all I know is that the last time it went on strike, I didn't actually notice because I get so little post anyway um, that I just didn't get any post as opposed to like one piece of post that I didn't want. So, I mean, nobody sends me anything anyway. 
Yeah, it's just another British institution. And I keep banging on about it because, look, I think most of us are patriotic. We are proud of the country that we live in and the traditions and the institutions that go with it. But they're all evaporating before our very eyes. I think it's a very, very sad state of affairs. Yeah, it really is. Thank you very much indeed. It checks in the post, as they say, uh, Russell. Cheers. Russell Quirk, social and political commentator uh, there, talking about how useless the postal service has now become. It really has become awful. And we shouldn't be happy about it. And I'm not saying uh, whose fault it is, but I suspect the management have not exactly played a blinder here. I didn't particularly want to ask the unions to come on to talk about it because all they do is blame the management when clearly the unions have got a bit of a part to play as well. But is it not just a bit too outmoded to even think of the postal service as something that you would rely on to get communications of any kind? Most people now um, don't even bother to get their bank statements sent to them. So what's the point of the post office? Can you tell me? Or the Royal Mail come to that. And why did they separate it out anyway? 0344 499 1000. Uh, coming up, uh, we'll be talking to Laura Dodsworth. She's going to come and talk to us about a great many things. One of the first breaking news stories of the day, TikTok has been fined £12.7 million for a number of data protection law breaches, including failing to use children's personal data lawfully. Well, I think we knew they were doing that, but now they've been fined £12.7 million. It's a bit like a drop in the ocean. That. But nevertheless, we'll be talking about that as well. This is Talk TV. Home of common sense. Talk radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV. I'm delighted to say it must be Tuesday because Laura Dosworth is here. How very nice to see you. Good morning. Very nice to see you. We just broke a piece of news that TikTok have been fined 12.7 million uh, for misuse of uh, data around children users of the app. So I don't know quite what the details are of that, but we'll bring them to you soon because we're going to be talking about AI and, mm. and modern technology and apps and all that sort of thing coming up a little bit later on. Um, but let's start off with a rather sad story about an elderly woman who died of hypothermia. I mean, amazing that that could happen in this day and age, um, but because of the rising price of energy. Yeah, I mean, so this is something you and I talked about a few times last year, that the um, terrifying increases in fuel costs would drive more people into fuel poverty. Yeah. Of course, charities have been warning about this, and that's why there was a scheme introduced to help homeowners. What was it? We got something like £400 a year towards our energy bills this yeah. winter. So there's an 87-year-old called Barbara Bolt, and she was found with hypothermia at home, which led to pneumonia, and she's died. And this isn't actually a very new story, but of course the coronial inquest has come out, which mm. links her fear of the sky-high energy bills yes. to the fact that she was she would not put her heating on, she was too scared to, and she's died of hypothermia, hypothermia and pneumonia. And her body temperature when they found her was so low, that I think that even the, the emergency workers were amazed. And her family, you know, and, and quite often sometimes people say, well, what were the family doing? Well, the family were doing their best to look after her. She wanted to live on her own. You know, they always told her she should turn the heating up, but she just, because of the nature of the way that she lived, she didn't do it. Well, I think that would be really unfair to turn things around on, on the family. Oh, totally, because, yeah. of course, there are thousands of people who are poor, vulnerable, you know, ill, and, need and, the alone. and don't have families right. to look after them. It can't all be the family's responsibility. Also, let's not forget, there's been a massive campaign, not just in this country, but, you know, in Europe too, to get people to turn their thermostats down. Right. And sometimes the temperature they're proposing won't be safe for mm. old people with conditions. My mum has lung conditions. She needs the heating up. Yeah. She needs it up or she has to be in bed. This is true of lots of elderly people with, with health conditions. Yeah. Now, this isn't... An another way this is not a new story 
stories. It's back in 2003 when a couple were similarly found dead because they couldn't afford the heating on a David blanket, made it um, a, a priority that mm. energy companies had to put a safety net around the vulnerable. This is not what's happened this winter. Um, you probably know Ofgem are under investigation for, uh, well, they're investigating the fact that energy companies have been putting people um, onto prepayment meters yes. if they can't pay their bills. Now, you might think this is just a handful of naughty people who aren't paying their mm. bills. It's about 10,000 people mm. a month. Wow. And what was happening was they're forcibly being put onto prepayment meters. So a case goes through the magistrate's court. The magistrate goes, yeah, OK, this person's not vulnerable. If you say they're not vulnerable... Right. And they haven't paid their bill for X haven't amount paid of time. Their bill. It's, it's not a very high threshold, I seem, I seem to remember. And yeah. then... Um, the energy company gets people to go into the home and change them from a normal meter to a prepayment meter. Mm. Don't forget that costs more. Yeah, It's harder for people on prepayment meters to get the vouchers. I think over a million of, over a million of those vouchers giving assistance mm. with energy bills were not claimed. Right. And the fact is that a lot of those people are vulnerable and the energy companies might not have been doing enough work to make sure that people they were mm. forcibly switching onto prepayment meters weren't actually single with babies, right. unable and to pay their bills, And does it also get around, because they, they introduced a new rule, didn't they, a new law that you couldn't cut people's energy supply off, which is what they used to do. I mean, I remember getting that, I think, when I was a student. You know, we lived in various different places. Sometimes there was a payment meter that you'd have to go down and put 50p in the, in the electric meter. Um, other times you would get cut off because you hadn't paid it. But now you can't get cut off. But I wonder if this is a way of getting around that, because if you can't prepay... You're effectively cut off, aren't you? Well, that's exactly right. Basically, switching somebody to a prepayment meter is disconnection through the back door. Mm. And it, it is astonishing and really depressing that in this country, we're supposedly a rich country in this day and age, mm. people are dying from cold. Yeah. This it's brought, hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, it brought a couple of things to mind for me. The first is a little bit of self-reflection. You know, we talked about energy bills a few times last year, and I said, this is frightening. Mm. People won't be able to afford their bills. There is also the risk that when you're in the media talking about these scenarios that you scare people. Mm. So according to this coronial inquest, Barbara Bolt, the 87-year-old, was frightened of her high bills. Mm. That's not necessarily anything to do with conversations you and I have, but it does make you reflect, you know, are you talking about things in the media in a way which is responsible, which won't elevate fears? Yeah. I mean, actually... There's a lot of fear in the media now. I'm hardly the worst perpetrator. You really it, aren't. It does make, it also, does make a lot you of think about yourself. Also, a lot of people are frightened of, of their high bills because they've just got a high bill. You know, that's yeah. the reality. Yeah. One of the things that I I'm have I'm scared of my that, bills, Mike. Yeah. Bring on well, the spring. Well, even I was shocked when I got my last one. I was mm. going, blimey. You know, it's about four times higher than it used to be. But anyway, and I, I, don't, even, I don't even use that much energy. But um, one of the, 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 the things that I've noticed that's crept into modern journalism and modern media is a question that I absolutely detest hearing and I hear it a lot when people are interviewing politicians or experts in something or other and they say how worried should we be about this and it's like what sort of a question is that how worried should you be well you shouldn't be worried you should learn about the facts you should cons consult people that know about these things and you should digest it you should not sit around worrying about it yeah, but I mean, it's I, a really stupid question. 
I don't think it's for the government to set the emotional temperature of the nation. They, they should have as little concern with our emotions as possible. Mm. I don't even particularly like governments having well-being or happiness scores. None of it. No, don't, don't be I'm interested, not interested in my, don't interested in my in fear or anxiety. Don't con concern yourself with your, my happiness. I don't want the government anywhere near my yeah. emotions. So I hate those questions too. The other thing that this sad story made me reflect upon is about how some deaths are politically inconvenient yes. and some deaths are politically dare I say, advantageous. Yes, so, or acceptable even. Uh, there is almost, there's very little, very little in the media, year after year, but including this year, about people dying from fuel poverty. Mm. And yet it is so avoidable. Now, controversial, and you're, you're going to be surprised to hear me saying this, because I'm not a big fan of state intervention, yeah. but perhaps energy should be available on prescription for people who can't afford it. Why do we make medicines free? Why do we have you know, food banks? But we don't give energy to people who would die without it. What about people who need electricity to charge up their, their stair lift or breathing equipment? Mm. There are people who need these things. If you have a brand new... I think new, it's a very dangerous you, road to go down. Well, you said very but I, I there's, a, there's a couple of angles to this. There are people who cannot live without energy. They cannot. And should we be looking after them? The second is, if we looked at energy this way... If we really admitted the truth of it, that health is directly correlated to wealth mm. and that some people cannot live without the ability to stay warm, it would halt the kind of net zero nonsense in its tracks. The very idea that we're all told before winter to turn our heating down, where there are some people who will die if they turn their heating down or can't run it, is it's appalling. It's an anathema. So some deaths, though, are considered almost um, something to trumpet about. Yeah. Look at Sadiq Khan saying that 4,000 people died in 2019 from poor air quality. Now, a lot of people would hear that figure and they would take it on good faith mm. because a political well, they'd leader... they'd that a mayor of London wouldn't tell something which wasn't true. They would. They would think that and they would think the scientists they behind be the wrong. studies must be truly independent. Actually, when you look at the research on this, some of the people involved in the science inverted commas are also involved in ULE's policy mm. there is not as much independence as you would like to think between policy and governance and science yeah. now in fact 4,000 people did not die it's a statistical construct mm. in other words it's misleading yeah. what it means is that the um, your life expectancy could be affected if all cars aren't abolished, yes. basically. That's another way mm. of putting it. And it doesn't take into account the fact that life expectancy has increased, mm. that we have um, many radical, wonderful health reforms. It also doesn't take into account the fact that air quality and life expectancy and health are very only indirectly mm. correlated. Like I said, the big correlation is your wealth, your socioeconomic level and your life expectancy. Yeah. If you make people poor, they'll die. So I find it fascinating that yeah, Sadiq Khan talking... never talks about fuel poverty. He doesn't, put, no. he doesn't talk about but people dying than... of cold in no. their homes in no, London. No, he doesn't. That's he talks true. about basically fictitious deaths from air quality. Mm, he does. But that's because Sadiq Khan doesn't tell the truth about an awful lot of things. But that's just his way of operating, unfortunately. But here's the thing. I was talking to um, Frank Ferretti this morning about Nigel Lawson and, and what he did as a Chancellor for this country and what he did for conservatism and what he did for the three enemies of what he called the, um, the well-run country that he made Britain at that time. 
which is rampant inflation uh, and over bloated public sector um, and, and too high uh, taxes, right? Mm. And we've got all of that now. And what I would say before we start giving more free stuff away to people who can't afford things is you make it cheaper because we could have much cheaper energy if we didn't have this mad net zero um, aim that seems to have encapsulated everybody that walks the earth. You know, mm. if we fracked, if we didn't pay uh, companies surcharges uh, and, and charge people surcharges to get green energy, if green energy was actually genuinely cheaper, we'd all have it. Mm. But we don't have that operate. We don't have that choice. If, if everything was cheaper, people wouldn't be dying. Sure. Now, don't misunderstand me. When I say should people have energy on prescription, I'm not sure what I think about that. It's a very socialist policy. I'm not sure what I think. I think there are some I mean, arguments. We already, we, already have, we already have people getting things on prescription which they could buy. But right? my point is, if we accepted that energy is a basic requirement for life, mm. it would stop some of the net zero madness in its tracks. Maybe. Which would be enough that would be worth a reason doing. to run the campaign. That would be worth doing. Now, what about Elon Musk? He wants to stop AI in its tracks. Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, I, I wish I understood more about the ramifications of AI. But the thing is, even Elon Musk, um, amazing tech entrepreneur, doesn't understand the ramifications. He made me laugh today. He changed the Twitter logo, by the way, from a bird to that um, dog from a, a oh, did he? digital currency. I'm just looking it at it now. I always want to say Doja, so I'm talking about the Italian Dukes of Venice, yeah. but it's Doggy, I think. Oh, OK. I missed it because I think he's changed it back. He's changed it back. Anyway, a little funny, funny little wink to the Twitterverse yes. today. Um, yes, he has said that AI, while it has potential for enormous benefit for humanity, it's also potentially really dangerous. It's, it's something that's been on my mind for a little while because... AI has the ability to be used for great harm to manipulate people. We live in quite a unique time mm. where there is this confluence between nudge and what we know about behavioural psychology and technology and right. what it's able to do. So actually, when, um, when my co-author Patrick Fagan and I wrote Free Your Mind, just for laughs and giggles, we decided to ask ChatGPT to write one of the chapters. Right. It was pretty good. Was it? It was. Now, it wasn't as good as our chapter, yeah. but it... You know, this kind of AI at the moment is like a toddler. Yeah. You know, when it's when it's been through university and done its masters and mm. its doctorate and it's writing books all on its own. Let's see what it's doing then. And what it was it basing as... its chapter on? How did it write the chapter? What knowledge did you give it? We like? didn't give it any knowledge. What it does is go and find the knowledge. Okay. We told we told it what we wanted it to write, okay. um, which was to replicate one of the chapters we'd written. Mm. It wasn't as good, like I say, but it was pretty good. Now, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, again for laughs, asked ChatGPT to write an article in the style of Laura Dodsworth, okay. an angry and passionate article about the dangers of AI to journalism, because it's something I've been talking about with this friend. And did, and that, did, the, did the, the AI chat I thing think it's pick up on, the subject? I think, I think for people who are watching on oh, TV, it's, it here, up, yeah. it's up on the screen right now, and I tweeted Title, it this morning. Title, The Silent Invasion, Artificial Intelligence and the Decline of Authentic Journalism. I've got to say it's a pretty good article, mm. but it made me laugh because it's written a style in, it's written an article in, this, in my style, yeah. in, in an angry and passionate tone. It's quite florid Mike mm. it's quite florid is it? quite dramatic florid language so that's what chat GPT thinks well, of you me because we, we funny enough Aaron uh, alerted me to this thing which I had never heard of and now it's everybody's talking about it yeah. a few weeks ago maybe and I did we, we asked it to write a piece about me uh, to see what it was like and it got quite a lot wrong 
um, like clearly made assumptions or, or went to the wrong sources for, and it, you know, didn't accuse me, but I mean, it, it said that I'd worked for places where I hadn't worked, yeah. said things about me which weren't really? true. Yeah. Is that based on some kind of fake Wikipedia entry you've got? Somebody I don't put think out so. some misinformation. I mean, most of what's on Wikipedia is, is accurate, I think. Um, but there's other, I guess, there's other information about me. I mean, I think there's something on the internet that says I've got a net worth of about 10 million quid, which is completely wrong, by the way. That's uh, just about my ex-wife. Um, and, you know, um, I, I, it, there was quite a lot of errors in it, is all I would say. But you're right, it's the, the very beginning, isn't it? So it could be, and, and I was listening to, Piers Morgan had a, an interview with Stephen Hawking before he died, and he asked him about AI and how dangerous it was. And Stephen Hawking said, when AI starts to be able to make its own decisions mm. and create its own world, that's when it will be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it is actually, I would, I would contend that AI is dangerous right now. One um, essay I've asked ChatGPT to write for me before is how it will um, influence journalism. Yeah. Now, again, there's going to be positives and there's going to be negatives, but it, it is affecting journalism right now. Mm. You know, some news companies are using AI to find and write news stories. That's already are happening. They? Yeah. But also, We're a- not. AI, no, here we are right no. now, real people. But um, also, AI is, is algorithms, you know, and that's what algorithms are. They, they are artificial intelligence. And so they create personalised digital environments. Mm. When you look at Twitter, you're not looking at the same thing as me. No. That's about who we follow and how we engage and the kind of environment that, that the algorithms create for us. But also, if you and I search for the same thing on Google, we might get different results too. Mm. And if you were, say... A young British person who would meet the who would meet the racial profiling of somebody that the government worries is a risk for radical terror, mm. uh, a risk a risk of being radicalised. And you searched for knife crime, you would get a different result to say me. Yeah. You know, so AI um, works all on its own the way it's been programmed, and the way it can be programmed is with a lot of bias. Mm. So a future risk for journalism as well is that if AI is used, you have to remember it's it's programmed and the people who program it will have deliberate political and ideological biases. And that's biases. really the dangerous bit, isn't it? And let's say you have to conform to some government quango um, or some voluntary form of regulation on behalf of media companies. The way AI could work is almost like a kind of a super, super injunction. Mm. It could mean that some things are just simply not discussed. Imagine. Well, they tried that, didn't they, during COVID? They tried to have things not discussed. They tried to shut down any kind of conversation about vaccine. They tried to shut down any conversation about lockdowns. You know, all of that happened. That's true. But it could be even worse because AI, by running it without any kind of personal human involvement, will stick to those rules potentially more rigidly. And then it gets even worse, Mike, which is that if AI is programmed to use psychology to um, persuade you um, or to control how news is disseminated, mm. again, your own environment, your own technical technological environment is going to be um, altered in a way to manipulate your brain. Use the example of COVID and vaccines. Well, let's just say that AI has noticed from you on social media that you're just somebody who doesn't like trying new things. Mm. Um, perhaps you're you're what's called a, a laggard. You don't like novel things. Yeah. Well, it might use that information to specifically try and reassure you that the vaccine isn't you. Mm. So you see, first of all, it can be programmed according to the biases of its programmers and the people yeah. that run it. Secondly, it will learn about you and adapt to you. And thirdly, it can be encouraged to use psychology to learn and adapt. Yeah. So the way that news is delivered, the way people consume it, could change beyond recognition. Journalists will be out of a job mm. unless they are... Bad ones will. 
Uh, well, I think it's a particular danger for news journalism. Obviously, personality-driven and opinion-led journalism is, so far as we know, here to stay. Mm. But AI is going to completely change the way we write But of course, people would say news. that in the old days, like when I started in newspapers, for example, um, there were different biases at play and there were different news stories in the papers because they were the kind of purview of the people who ran those papers and the people who ran those papers were by and large a homogenous group of white males. Absolutely. And there's, there is a danger of thinking that everything that's happening with AI is brand new and it isn't necessarily. It's just I'll different. Give you, I'll give you one example. I thought, is AI going to be a risk to my originality? I like to think of myself as having quite a left field, mm. creative, original brain. Mm. What if I don't? What if AI can copy me? So I've been yeah, looking at Yeah, but it can't though, can it? Because it can't really copy you. It can't copy your creati creativity. It can copy what you've done. It can't copy what you haven't done yet. Well, I'm going to I'm going to be really generous to AI, harsh on myself, and make a broader philosoph mm. philosophical point here. I like to think of myself as original, but I've taken inspiration from many sources, from things I've read, from films I've watched. I think something that AI wouldn't necessarily be able to replicate now is if I go into nature and I see a view, and that itself inspires me. I could have a kind of a sensory yeah. ins inspiration that it can't replicate yet. But we take our inspiration from all different kinds of sources. Well, that's what AI is doing, mm. okay? And it's accessing those sources much faster than you can. It will beat you at accessing well, sources for inspiration. But it's but it's a bit like the old argument about chess, isn't it? And whether a, a machine can be better at chess than a person. And a machine can be because it's a, it's a strictly controlled environment and the environment doesn't change really beyond what, what's possible to do on a chessboard. The world isn't like that. Life isn't like that. But and your next is? book, you don't even know what it is. I so, do actually, so, anyway. Well, the one after that. <laughs> That's but true, I the don't. The point is you, you don't know how it's going to start or how it's going to end. You don't necessarily know a lot about what you're going to be doing in the next two weeks which could completely alter your life. So the chatbot could never do that. There's unpredictability. But there's another way of looking at that too, which is what is the human environment that we think is so special and original? So the famous psychoanalyst and post-World War writer Carl Jung had a great saying, which is that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Mm. Have you ever noticed that new ideas and inventions kind of bubble up in different places in the world at the same time? There's also this elusive idea that ideas come from the collective unconscious and much less from us as individuals than we think. Mm. Who knows? There are some um, broad philosophical comparisons then, I there, I think. You'd have to assume that everybody is an homogenous person like the next, and they're not either. So that's the other thing, because everybody's different. And so you can't really make a... a, a you know, an AI um, bot which will replicate every single person. You'd have to make a different bot for each person, wouldn't you? Look, I'm going kicking and screaming into this new world yeah. as much as you seem to be. I like to think I'm original, I can't be replicated. Yeah. But I think that the speed at which it's developing is very interesting and it does open up some quite broad philosophical debates, I think, which are Jungian nature about the collective unconscious. AI can find everything, everything online, everything on a server. It can access information that I can't. Maybe I'm tapped into something else, something that, you know, um, modern day psychologists would say, not necessarily say there's any evidence for, but that I personally believe, you know, our symbolism and archetypes are really hardwired. And maybe when I think I have an original idea, it's less original than I thought. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm open-minded. Let's see what it continues to do. Maybe you just suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> oh, I do, I see? do. See, I do. Yeah, yeah, you, that could have cost you a lot of money. You could have had a seven-week series of psycho and 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 analytical um, exams to get to that point. And maybe I've got female socialisation. I want to talk about the difference between men and women. The, 
and it's specifically in relation to a horrible case in mm. the news right now. Sean Hogg, who hasn't got a custodial sentence yes. for raping a 13-year-old. And it made me think, you know, there's a country that I as a woman would not want to move to mm. now. And it's not Saudi Arabia, it's Scotland. Mm. I would really, I can't imagine a more woman-unfriendly country. They don't even know what a woman is. Right. They won't define a woman. Doesn't look like Hamza Yusuf's going to tell you either anytime soon. And and if this rapist hasn't gone to prison, well, you know what? They're happy to put male rapists in women's prisons, mm. aren't they? They've done it. What an what a crazy situation. I, I mean, the if, idea if you're of under twenty five, is that the guy was seventeen when he committed the, the rape, right? Yeah. And they're saying that therefore that has to be taken into account by law, which it sort of does. I'm not defending it. Um, but it seems ludicrous that that would mean no custodial sentence at all. Well, it's extraordinary. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And and other legal you know legal minds have come out straight away to say it's an extraordinary act to, you know, not to give him a custodial sentence. What does this mean? Is this like a get-out-of-jail-free card mm. for under 25-year-olds? Was rape a special, special circumstance? Right. Is rape different? It was his first offence, but, you know, if you read the details of this case, he had attacked this same girl on other occasions mm. first. Right. At 17... And surely it should be exacerbated by her age, which you, is only 13. You know what you're doing yeah. at 17. Sure. I, I mean, how can he have evaded prison mm. for this? Not only should he go to prison, he should surely go to prison for a really long mm. time. I'm not even sure that the sentence that would have been available is long enough. Imagine that 13-year-old girl and her family hearing this news. How must it feel mm. as a child to know that your male rapist attacker walked free? Yeah, and he might be walking into you around the corner. Because that's what a lot of the people involved in the grooming gangs said when they were, you know, victims, that they would see their attackers in, in the community and well, every day. For the next several years, she could wonder if she's going to bump into him. It's, yeah. it's, it's just revolting. Mm. But I don't, I don't know what's going on with Scotland. No, I it's don't. a very odd place at the moment. I, I don't want to live there as a and woman. I, and I lived there for a long time and my family are from there and I find it very strange what's happening. But the only thing I can say is that an awful lot of sensible people are still in Scotland and I talk to a lot of them. And they promised me that they're going to get it back because they need to. They need to get it back from SNP, really, don't they? They do. Absolutely right. Laura, thank you very much indeed. Um, fascinating as ever. Laura Dosworth will be back, of course, uh, next week when I won't be here, unfortunately. Uh, this is Talk TV. Label. Label. Being an outsider is fine. Embrace the label because it's the outsiders who change the world and who make a real and lasting difference. The more that a broken system tells you that you're wrong, the more certain you should be that you must keep pushing ahead. This is a party that wants an outsider badly. I continue to believe Mr. Trump will not be president. You must keep pushing forward. Never, ever give up. There'll be times in your life you'll want to quit, you'll want to go home. I can't do it. I can't do it. Wow. I mean, you've got to say, American politics is different gravy, isn't it? Let's talk to LaDonna Harvey and find out what is going on. LaDonna, a very good morning to you. And a good morning to you. Uh, what is going on? That's a really good question. I've wanted to know for the past, for the past <laughs> I don't know, 20 years or so. <laughs> yes. I've got a tweet here from somebody called The Panther, and it's, it's sort of uniquely irrelevant, so I'm going to read it out. I've been waiting to get my foot amputated since the beginning of 2020. I mean, Ooh. that kind of... Um, I'm, sorry, I'm sure it's a terrible situation for him, but 
Um, yeah. There's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Um, I discovered that video uh, on Twitter that I just played you a little clip from, uh, which comes from the MAGA war room, uh, apparently, um, put together with love and affection and all of that. Um, but Donald Trump is a phenomenon. I, I'm told that he's now collected something like $10 million in donations since he's been indicted for his campaign. Yeah, well, he's using it as a as a fundraising tool, which I, you know, I think any good politics watcher would have known was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no way he doesn't leverage this into campaign dollars for himself. He is determined that he is going to be the next president of the United States and he's going to do whatever it takes to, to achieve that goal. And I mean, that's, you know, bottom line. It's bottom line. But is, is the, uh, the the lawsuit and the indictment actually going to help him to perhaps achieve that? So, you know, what they say about religion, if you want a religion to flourish, prosecute it or persecute it. Mm. And uh, if you want Donald Trump to flourish, prosecute him. Uh, You know, this is over hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels to not talk about the affair uh, that they allegedly had. Um, And, you know, bottom line is it's it's not illegal to pay somebody hush money. Right. It's just not uh, what what I think the D.A. is going for is trying to get him on essentially a technicality where he says, well, you know, you you paid the money and then you shuffled the money around and it kind of came out of the business and it shouldn't have come out of the mm. business. And he may be correct. But, uh, you know, for a for a hush money payment that's gone awry, 30 plus counts. That seems like a little bit much. Yes, and I think Donald like, Trump uh, has a great argument to make against that. It seems like over-enthusiasm at the very least, doesn't it? And of course, this is also a charge that was labelled before, uh, or levelled before, I should say, and in fact uh, was did, did not stand the test uh, that it was given by, by scrutiny of federal prosecutors. And the federal prosecutors didn't think it would stand up. This guy is not a federal prosecutor. He's a Manhattan no. district attorney, so therefore not quite so far-reaching. Uh, and that's why he's brought the case in New York City. And that's why he's doing it. He said when he was elected, uh, when he was running for office, that he wanted to bring down Donald Trump. Right. And, uh, you know, that's what he ran on. That's what he's going to give a, a go to. And good luck, Mr. Bragg. His name is Alvin Bragg. Um, it's it's the thing is, it's like you can get a grand jury in the United States to indict a ham sandwich, right. uh, you know, because there doesn't need to be any preponderance of evidence to to get somebody into court. But what the D.A. has to do is then be able to prove it. You know, can he prove all of these things? One of his witnesses is going to be one Michael Cohen. This is an attorney who spent some time in prison because he ripped off his clients. Um, so you're going to have a jury that is that is going to be slightly tainted by that knowledge. It's it will be acknowledged in court. Uh, what's going to happen today? Trump's going to walk in there. He's there's no perp walk. There are no handcuffs. Uh, there won't be any kind of, you know, what you see on on uh, CSI or SVU or, or any of those. Uh, he's not even I don't even believe he's getting photographed. Uh, he's going to walk in, he's going to plead not guilty, and then he's going to leave. And I guess the only thing that we really know at this point is, you know, does the judge in, in, in issue a gag order to try to keep him from speaking? Right. 
I don't think he does. I, well, I don't think. The I mean, again, if there. he did, that would be more um, a grist to the mill, wouldn't it? Because Trump has already right. said he's going back to Mar-a-Lago tonight. He's going to make a statement. He's going to speak to the people. Um, it'll be like a presidential State of the Union address. And if he gets up there right. and says, well, I wanted to speak to you about the uh, ridiculous circus that happened earlier in Manhattan, but unfortunately I've been gagged and I now live in a country where uh, freedom of speech is not allowed. Yeah. And he will literally love it. He'll run away with it. Well, he's going to run away with it anyway. Um, you know, the one thing that Trump is masterful at, love him or hate him, and you can do either one, I don't care. Uh, the one thing he's masterful at is taking control of a situation and turning it in his favor. Yes. So, you know, if Alvin Bragg is thinking that this is all going to go his way, then he's not been paying attention to Donald Trump. So, it's, you know, you, you want to go for him then you'd better go for him with really, really good evidence and a, and a great court case. Yes. Well, as has been said many times in some good movies and other not so good movies, you know, uh, if you are going to if you're going to come for me, you better kill me, because if you don't kill right. me, I'm coming after you. And and Donald Trump is really good at it. Has yeah. anybody been paying attention? It, you know, be be wary. Yeah, absolutely right. And will there be technically a bail sort of hearing? Will he will he need to make bail? Is is it not that serious an issue? Because it's not really a criminal case, this is it? Right. Nothing about this is normal. I don't know if he'll need to make bail. Mm. If he does, oh my God, is he going to make hay out of that? Right. Uh, But I I doubt it. Uh, Probably released on his own recognizance. It's not like you can't find the guy. No. And also, (laughs) he is, is, I mean, the the other rather curious part of all of this is that he will be, when he he is in attendance at at the court, he will be with his usual protection officers um, from the Secret Service who protect every president uh, until the day they die. You know, so it's going to be a very odd scene, isn't it? Well, it's a it's a very odd scene. And, and, you know, just keep in mind, no matter what happens, none of this stops him from running for president. Right. Let's say he's convicted on 30,000 counts of you paid hush money and, and were a bad boy and smack him on the wrist. Right. Convict him of all of it. You cannot stop him from running for president. Mm. And when will America return to its senses? Because, you know, we hear also stories this morning that uh, that Meghan Markle uh, may be interested in running for president. I'm not sure I believe any of them. But, um, you know, you're in a very odd place politically. There doesn't appear to be a natural progression from Joe Biden to a a younger Democrat candidate. Um, Right. uh, Ron DeSantis looks good for a while, but but at the moment Trump is, is way ahead in the polls because of what's going on. Without a doubt. I mean, he's given, uh, you know, daily, monthly, by minute by minute, free publicity by every news station that there is mm. in the United States. And I don't know how you really overcome that if you're Ron DeSantis, et cetera. So I, at this point, I don't know what the Democrats are going to do. California Governor Gavin Newsom is a possibility, but that's only if Biden backs out. And, you know, then what do you do with Kamala Harris? There she is, you know, sort of hanging around, but not doing much. No. Well, we should probably be thankful for that. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm grateful. I think the less the White House (laughs) does at the moment, the better, really. I mean, after uh, Joe Biden's appearance in um, in that uh, place that he called Rolling Stone, um, as opposed (laughs) to Rolling Fork. Yeah. Not great. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, He's not looking 
like the Joe Biden that we remember from the, you know, from the from the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, even he's obviously slowed down. And this is something that is going to work against him, unfortunately, um, especially if, you know, people are looking at voting for him. He's sticking with Kamala and they think, oh, God, if anything happens to him, we get her and yeah. we don't want her. No, exactly right. So, well, we should watch it with interest. I dare say it will be the biggest thing on TV today, uh, Donald Trump yeah. appearing uh, before the court in Manhattan. LaDonna, thank you very much indeed. LaDonna Harvey from KOGO in San Diego, uh, watching as, as we are from afar uh, to see exactly what is going to happen uh, on this day. Whatever is going to happen, you can be pretty certain that it's going to be positive news for Donald Trump. He doesn't care whether they charge him. He doesn't care whether they've indicted him. He doesn't care about all of these counts. All he knows is uh, that his popularity goes up with every single second of it and that's what's going on across the uk online and on dab the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.